Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, April the 1st, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, April the 4th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 102nd post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos. Last month marks the anniversary of the assassination of Oscar Arnulfo Romero, Archbishop of El Salvador, by U.S.-backed forces. Our guest tonight is the author of Witness to War, Dr. Charlie Clements, and we wanted to bring back to the radio waves the horrific repression that occurred not just in El Salvador, but we're featuring El Salvador tonight, but throughout Central America that we were party to. While U.S. citizens were being propagandized to associate El Salvadoran rebels and the resistance movement to terrorists that sought to disrupt fair and democratic elections, Charlie Clements' experience revealed a different impression. The chronic, unrelenting terror of death squads, skinning people alive, cigarette burns over their whole body, chopping off the breasts of women and other unspeakable terrors were being committed by U.S.-supported El Salvadoran troops, police, and paramilitary death squads. The rebels' code of conduct, though, indoctrinated them to honor rather than dishonor the memory of those that had suffered the terrible crimes rather than adopt the killer's disregard for life. On page 57 and 56, Charlie Clements writes this in Witness to War. On no account were civilians to be harmed, and any looting or other breaches of discipline would be dealt with severely, he writes about the FMLN. Quote, the government troops were especially cruel to the wounded. Dr. Jasmine reminded them of the health worker who had recently been skinned alive piece by piece. The graphic nature of those descriptions is important because it's not just the horrific terror that swept El Salvador under our watch, but later the Mujahideen, the Al-Qaeda groups that beheaded people and such, became our allies not just in Afghanistan, but later, as we have shown, in Syria as well. Also recently, we have documented what has been completely neglected by the Western press, or at least minimized as Russian nonsense, namely the neo-Nazi component of the Ukrainian government, specifically and particularly following the 2014 coup and their influence in the Azov Battalion, as well as other military units throughout the Ukrainian army. This show is airing on the anniversary of the April 4th, 1967 speech by Dr. Martin Luther King, Silence is Betrayal. He talked about our foreign policy in our country as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. 
but Dr. Martin Luther King did not speak about the types of violence that, that he surely would want us to be accountable for as well. Anyhow, with that all in mind, tonight's focus is on a heroic American, Dr. Charlie Clements, who went to Vietnam, came home, went to school, became a doctor, and then went behind rebel control lines in El Salvador, spending almost a full year behind rebel control lines and wrote a very powerful book, Witness to War, that we reflect upon during this show, bringing light into darkness. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. It's uh, Friday, April the 1st, 2022. This show is being broadcast to be replayed on Monday, April the 4th, 2022. Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. I wanted to start off by sharing we have a very special guest and friend that's going to be joining us today. But before I formally introduce him, I wanted to pay tribute to a part of the topic of what we'll be talking about, our human rights history in, in El Salvador. And it was very close to 42 years ago today that Archbishop Romero was assassinated. Arnolfo Romero was assassinated on March 24th, 1980. He was an outspoken human rights defender in El Salvador of the poor. And he actually came to that human rights defender of the poor realization later in his life. He was actually a very conservative clergy person, but I got radicalized by his very close friends and then the experiences that he actually encountered once he was named the archbishop. He was named the archbishop in 1977. During a terrible time of history, it was the beginning of a civil war in El Salvador that in 1980 to 1992 occurred. His assassination was in 1980. He became the 11th priest that was murdered in El Salvador in just three years. Those of us that have studied this subject are aware that four women American missionaries, they spent their last months of their lives together in El Salvador as well. They were very close to the archbishop and they were horrified by his assassination. And actually, the funeral that followed on March 30th in 1980, which of course is almost to the day, the anniversary today, that funeral itself was attacked by security forces and it resulted in a massacre that left some 44 dead and hundreds wounded. I wanted to pay tribute to these women that were murdered later that year as they drove to the airport or drove from the airport on December 2nd, 1980. They were four missionaries. They were down in El Salvador serving the poor. Three of them were nuns, Mary Noel's sister, Ida Ford, Mary Noel's sister, Maura Clark, and Ursuline sister, Dorothy Kazel. And one was a laywoman, Jean Donovan. But they had all volunteered to work in El Salvador as missionaries and were engaged in this work. And there was this one particular quote that always stuck with me and continues to stick with me to this day. As a metaphor of sorts for what human rights is all about to me, namely the right for an opportunity to a dignified life for all persons of humanity. It had to do with the words of Jean Donovan, who came from a family of loyal patriotic Republicans. She understood the direct connection between the violence in El Salvador and the policies of the U.S. government. In a letter she wrote to her friend, quote, things grew progressively worse in El Salvador after the United States election of Reagan. The military believed they were given a blank check, no restrictions in light of what happened, I guess referring to the assassination of the archbishop. 
Who's to say they weren't, she wrote. Two weeks before she was murdered, with the bloodbath already begun, she wrote to her friend in Connecticut, quote, several times I've decided to leave El Salvador. I almost could except for the children, the poor bruised victims of this insanity. Who would care for them? Whose heart would be so staunch as to favor the reasonable thing to do in a sea of their tears and helplessness? Not mine, dear friend, not mine. Those words in defense of humanity have always stayed with me. So she felt compelled, as the other nuns did, to stay there, and they ended up getting brutally murdered and raped by U.S.-supported El Salvadoran military personnel. And I guess I want to take a step back because this violence has a great impact on us, but I think we also forget that the brunt of all of this violence was the El Salvadoran people, and there's no such thing as a lesser person. So the human rights violation of any person is untenable. But some 75,000 El Salvadorans were killed during this period, and they were killed overwhelmingly by government U.S.-supported forces. And the reason we know this is because of two U.N.-commissioned human rights violation investigations, again by the U.N., from 1980 to 1992, that civil war period, a UN Truth Commission mandated as part of the country's 1992 peace accords in El Salvador found that the FMLN guerrillas were responsible for 5% of the human rights violations, and these violations resulted in 75,000 deaths and thousands of disappeared persons. Meanwhile, the U.S.-supported armed forces were responsible for 90% of these atrocities, with the remaining 5% undetermined. At the same time, we alluded to the Guatemalan carnage in a show just a couple of weeks ago that took over 250,000 lives over a 20-year period from the 60s through the 80s. And a U.N. commission paid for by the United States and the European Union in its report on the Guatemalan insurgency published in 2002 found that only 3% of the deaths were caused by the rebels, 97% the work of government forces. This is the terror that largely went unreported in which the United States was complicitly supporting. Of course, the language that we get here is that it's a civil war and that the both sides are violators, but the human rights violation were overwhelmingly done by the state. The same type of ratio was found. So I just wanted to make it very clear that when you have these types of governments that owned all the land, that were profoundly wealthy and exploited not just the land, but the people of the land, Eventually, it rose to resistance, and that resistance took different forms. But before we go into and dive into that part of our subject matter, I wanted to go ahead and introduce our guest, Dr. Charlie Clements. So first off, Charlie, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. It's been some years, and it's just wonderful to have you. Thanks, Pedro. It's great to be back. Yeah, well, well, let me just share that El Salvador is a country that's really densely populated, and it only had one medical school, and our guest wrote a book in 1984 called Witness to War. And Charlie Clements, he, he reflected an eyewitness account of his experience in El Salvador, where he rendered medical aid from March of 1982, that's almost 40 years ago today, to the date. And then he left El Salvador in early 1983. So for almost a year, he was rendering aid. He comes from, and I'm talking about Charlie Clements, he comes from a military family. 
and he's a distinguished graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy. He was a pilot of these C-130s, and he was engaged in more than 50 combat missions in Vietnam before becoming disillusioned with U.S. involvement there. That experience led him to re just renounce violence and to pursue medicine. And in 1980, he graduated from the University of Washington School of Medicine. He also holds graduate degrees in public administration as well as public health. He's testified in front of Congress in his pursuits of promoting peace, but peace with justice. Um, he's worked in the human rights field for his whole adult life. And he became part of the staff at Natividad Medical Center in Salinas, California in 1980, towards the end of that medical graduation period. And immediately crossed paths with numbers of El Salvadoran refugees that were fleeing the Civil War in 1980. And then this armed conflict, in which we've already indicated the U.S. military supported, it poured into and supported this brutal government of El Salvador, which lasted uh, the Civil War did to the peace accords in 1992, went over a 12-year period. It's a fascinating book that Charlie wrote back in 1984. And before we start talking about that, Charlie, I was just wondering if you could share with us you come from, I would suspect, from reading your book, a fairly conservative military family. And then you become one of the premier human rights defenders of our generation and then become a peace activist, I believe a Quaker, if I'm not mistaken. But I'm just wondering, can you share what led to the transformation into the person that you became? Pedro, it was uh, entirely my experiences in Vietnam. I was in graduate school at UCLA and had been offered the opportunity to stay for a PhD. And then my soccer coach from the academy got sent back to Vietnam for the second time. And he had daughters about nine and seven. And I was having the time of my life at, at UCLA. And I realized they were sending guys back like him, a family man, for a second tour of uh, duty in, in, in Vietnam. And that it didn't seem very fair. So I decided I would take a quick master's degree and go to pilot training and, you know, do my duty. We were at war in Vietnam, and I had gone to the Air Force Academy, and it was my responsibility to, to find a way to, to contribute to the cause. So, uh, you know, in, uh, it, it actually began in pilot training. In the, in the first week, Martin Luther King was, was, was murdered. And at the bar where the officer's club, where everybody went after a day of pilot training, there were people cheering and said that he had it coming. He was a communist. He opposed the war. That really kind of took me back. And then about three months later, when Bobby Kennedy was killed, some of the people were saying the same thing, that he had it coming, that he was opposed to the war, that he was a communist. That, those experiences made me decide I didn't want to kill anybody. I had an obligation to serve. And so I looked for a role in which I could be a non-combatant. And it looked like a C-130, which is a large four-engine uh, turboprop made for landing on short airfields and, and fire bases. It ended up being my duty there. And gradually over uh, a period of months in, in Vietnam, and uh, you know, a, a combat mission is when you take off in the morning and land at night, but in between them might be 14, 12 or 14 stops around Vietnam carrying various things. So I saw a lot of the war, you know, a lot of it from up high. So I wasn't, uh, you know, in the same kind of danger that a soldier on the ground was, but I saw a lot of the war because I went from one end of Vietnam to the other over to Thailand. We would cross over Cambodia and Laos uh, sometimes. And I began to realize that if I were a, a young person in Vietnam, I would probably be a Viet Cong because they had, you know, struggled for many, many years to de defeat the French who occupied their country. And they finally did 
in a huge battle at a place called Dinh Binh Phu in 1954. They defeated the French and the French left and there were supposed to be elections to decide who would leave Vietnam. But temporarily, they allowed the people from the north to aggregate in the north and people in the south to aggregate in, in, in the south. And when the elections were scheduled, the U.S. called them off because it, it was very clear that Ho Chi Minh was going to win. And that was slowly the beginning, I think, of the conflict because the, the Viet Cong kind of formed out of that residual resentment that they weren't going to be allowed to decide who was going to rule their country. But I think what disturbed me the most was I was constantly being asked to lie. The U.S. public was being fooled by the war in Vietnam. Uh, one time we went into a morgue to pick up a body and we were told, no, the body count's not right. This week we're going to wait a few, a few more days on this one. I had classmates who were B-52 pilots who would go on bombing missions from Guam or from Thailand and they would be bombing in Cambodia. And when they got back from those missions, they would erase those coordinates so that their mission documents didn't reflect that they had bombed in Cambodia because we weren't at war with Cambodia. And this kind of thing was going on around me all the time. And there was such a, an attitude of the American soldiers of, of disdain for the Vietnamese that we were allegedly helping, a lot of racism. And it was clear to me that we were not going to be able to win that war and that we were also squelching a very strong Vietnamese desire to control their own destiny. And that's what the war was about. It wasn't about the Soviet Union or China. And so those kind of feelings and observations continued to build until I participated in a, in a top secret mission in January of 1970 into Cambodia, uh, where we flew to a rendezvous point. We're met by MiG-15s or MiG-17s, very old Korean War vintage planes. They escorted us down to the runway in Phnom Penh, and a State Department team on our aircraft disappeared for eight hours while we stayed on the tarmac. And they came back. And later uh, in Saigon, I was told by a CIA agent that I was a fool if I thought that that was a diplomatic mission discussing the issue of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, where the Vietnamese brought supplies into South Vietnam from the north, that it wasn't about that at all, that they were arranging the overthrow of, of Prince Sihanouk, the leader of that nation. And then in three months, I would see Prince Sihanouk go to Paris for medical consultation, and a man named Law Nol would take over the country. And shortly after that, the U.S. would be invited to invade Cambodia. I didn't believe it at the time. I thought he was just trying to one-up up me. But six weeks later, Sihanouk went to Paris and Law Nol took over. And six weeks after that, I was flying 10 missions that day to the border of Cambodia, taking fully equipped U.S. combat soldiers. Uh, a soldier is going someplace with his, with his uh, rifle. We could carry 120 of them, but a fully loaded soldier for combat with his backpack and, and uh, supplies for three days, we could only carry 60. And we made about 10 trips that day. So it was clear to me the invasion of Cambodia was coming the next day. And that night I decided I wasn't going to fly anymore. I may not have understood what was going on, but I knew that we were turning Cambodia into a landscape that looked like the moon with B-52s, mm. that we weren't at war with that country, and that I didn't want to participate any further in the war. So what you're saying is that we actually put into power somebody that would basically do what we wanted to do and ask us to participate in a way that we wanted to participate, namely the Cambodian invasion. Is that right? In bombing? Yes, because, you know, Prince Sihanouk was, was walking this very delicate balance. He didn't have the military force to stop the Vietnamese. He did make them stay on one narrow slice of their country, but they were using it as a, as a transit point. But he didn't have the wherewithal to stop them. And we were demanding that, that he do that. And when he wouldn't, we replaced him. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting, that history and that there's so many people that I have read the book Deadly Deceits by another. He was a Republican born Ralph McGee, I think. 
Right. And he had the same type of story, Charlie. It's interesting. It was different, but the same. His book titled Deadly Deceits, My 21 Years in the CIA, says it all. He said that he was sending intelligence. This is a CIA guy, right? And he was sending the intelligence that you were talking about, namely that there was this overwhelming support of Ho Chi Minh. But he kept on getting cables back and hearing on the news something quite different. And he thought, oh, they didn't get my cables. So he would send them again. And no matter what the truth on the ground was, there was a particular narrative that was going to be promoted no matter what. And he got very, very disillusioned eventually as well. If we can fast forward in late February of 1982, this is after you're back from Vietnam. You were trying to, my understanding from your medical engagement in Salinas, California with these El Salvadoran refugees, you must have drawn some type of parallels about a a very inhumane type of thing that was going on, but you really did something about it. You went into Honduras and then into a rebel-controlled, this FMLN rebel-controlled area, El Salvador, and on the morning of, of March 7th, 1982, okay, so this is again, we're almost on the anniversary of that, right, a month away from that anniversary in a sense. Anyhow, you entered this FMLN rebel-controlled area on this volcano, and you brought in your medical equipment, but you also had some specific limitations that you were not going to carry a sidearm, that you were only going to promote medicine, your medical neutrality, in other words, anyone that needed it. You wanted to work with the civilian population which is what you did. And in this book, you recount all sorts of experiences, but you uh, go in with a 75-pound backpack with with bone saws and sterilization equipment. And you just kind of share with us those 10 months, the experiences and um, some of the highlights that still stay with you from that experience. Well, I think the, the, the biggest highlight that I carried away, I think, was I was living with peasants or campesinos in uh, Guasapa and that area would be bombed or rocketed or strafed daily by U.S.-supplied aircraft, not because it was a primary target, but because it was not far from the flight path of landing at Ilopango uh, Air Base. And so when A-37s or Mirages, whatever kind of planes Salvadorans were flying, would go out on missions, uh, if they came back with unexpended ordnance, they didn't want to land with unexpended ordnance because that would be you know, adding to the risk. And so they would just fly over Guasapa and look for something interesting and and, and drop a bomb or, or fire rockets. And so people were under a lot of stress in that area. And yet they were incredibly kind and incredibly generous and very faithful. And, you know, some of the leaders uh, were certainly Marxist, but for the most part, these were these were peasants who were fighting for their, for their land. You know, they remind me a lot of what's going on in Ukraine today because they were, they were fighting in their home turf. And of course, they were going to defeat an army that was invading and didn't know that side of the mountain or where they could hide behind rocks and snipe at other other soldiers or where they could plant landmines. Uh, they'd grown up in those in those hills. Well, let me ask you this, because when you were in El Salvador during this period of time, there was all of these disappearances that were going on. It was a horrific environment for the El Salvadorans. And there's all sorts of documentation of hideous types of torture and those types of things that went on. But the School of the Americas, they were created in 1946. And 
they had trained nearly 60,000 Latin American soldiers and officers from 23 countries in Latin America. This was back during that time. And a number of these, these folks that would constitute these armies of El Salvadoran military would not just harass, but would really hunt down a lot of these villages. And you have some passages in your book about what happened to some of these people that got captured and how whole villages would sometimes would have to get up and move because they were being told that the uh, Salvadoran military troops were in the neighborhood and coming that way. And so, but can you relate a little bit to our audience, the types of the war crimes that were not unusual to occur to El Salvadorans if they were perceived as being part of the resistance to this government, or even if they were civilians? Well, uh, you know, the, the best example of that in the, is really the archbishop and the, and the nuns. They were accused of being communists because they were working with the poor. And that's all it took to be accused of being a communist. You know, once you were accused of being a, a communist, you could be killed uh, without any consequences. And so, you know, the teachers union called Andes went on strike for, for better conditions. They had 60 to 70 students in a classroom uh, and no textbooks of any kind. And the teachers went on strike and they were accused of being communist. And a lot number of them were picked up by death squads and, and murdered. Uh, Dr. Clements, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. I want to remind folks that this is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin, the premier community radio station of the nation. Today is the anniversary, not just of Dr. King's untimely assassination, but of his very powerful speech. We encourage you to check out Silence's Betrayal, April 4th, 1967. We'll be back right after this.